From the ACLU, this is At Liberty. I'm Molly Kaplan, your host. Please note that this episode contains conversation around sexual violence and may not be appropriate for all audiences. Calls to defund the police and even abolish the police are often met with the retort, but what do we do about the rapists and the murderers? It's a question that today's guest, Kamon Felix, addressed head-on with an article in New York Magazine's The Cut titled Aching for Abolition as a Survivor of Sexual Violence. She explains that as a sexual assault survivor, the incarceration of her attacker brought her no solace. She invites the reader to listen, to be led, and to invest in agency when thinking about accountability and healing. Felix is the vice president of strategic communications for Blue State, a purpose-driven strategy agency. Before Blue State, she was the director of surrogates and strategic communications at Elizabeth Warren for president. She's also a prolific poet and was long listed for the National Book Award in 2019. Kamon, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I want to start with the article that you wrote for The Cut. You root the discussion about abolition and sexual violence in this very personal experience. The topic that we're about to address is not a hypothetical for you. It's a lived experience. And I was wondering if you'd feel comfortable sharing a little bit about that personal story as much as you were comfortable with. Sure. As a little girl, I had some family members who were suffering because of addiction, because of homelessness. And one of those people was my aunt Greta. And my aunt Greta died in my early childhood. So I think actually before I was born. And what happened that followed that is that her children, my cousins, went under the care of my grandmother and my mother. And so we were all essentially raised in the same home, raised more as siblings than as cousins. And the person that I spent the most time with was my Aunt Greta's youngest son, and his name, I will change for this, is Artie. And we spent a lot of time together. And when I was small, I didn't know that this was happening, but he was raping me multiple times across a sustained and prolonged period of time. I didn't tell anyone for a little bit of time, mostly because I didn't really know what was happening. It didn't feel, it felt violent, but it didn't feel intuitively wrong or bad. And I think in part because I didn't know what sex was and I didn't understand power dynamics or how any of those things play in. So I didn't keep it to myself because I was like afraid to tell. That just didn't seem like there was anything to tell, even though I knew it was weird until one day in the third grade or the second grade, one of the two, a dare representative came into my classroom. And then one thing that they said, which I still think is like a weird thing to say to a room of third graders, but one of them said, like, you shouldn't do drugs because it might make you more vulnerable to rape and sexual assault. And quoted the statistic, one in every three women will be raped in her lifetime. And part of why I love language is because You don't always need someone to define a word for you, for you to know in your soul, in your skin, what it means and how you relate to it. So I heard them say that word, big R, is what I thought of it in my head. And I knew immediately that something bad had been happening and that the person who was driving me was my cousin. And I didn't feel immediately like anchored by it or even debilitated. I was just confused. He was like my brother. 
the person closest to me. He also was the person who tortured me the most. So it all sort of seemed to make sense and not make sense at all. And I went home and a couple of days later, I was getting into some trouble. And my mom, another very intuitive, very spiritually present person, sat me down and was just like, I know something's wrong with you and you need to tell me what it is. And I told her, and if there's one thing I will always say about my mom, I mean, there are many things to say about my mom, but sexual assault and rape is pretty, it's not foreign to women. It's especially not foreign to Black women. And it's especially not foreign to Caribbean women. I'm of Caribbean descent. And so it's not like this was the first time that my mother had heard that something like this happened, but she decided that she was going to be the person in our lineage who was going to do something about it. Something similar had happened to her, similar things had happened to my grandmother, my great-grandmother, and people don't say anything about it. They just sort of sweep it under the rug because they know that the alternative, saying something and maybe getting someone in trouble, is not necessarily the thing they want to happen. It also might make them more vulnerable. It might mean, it might cost them their lives. Also, people straight up just don't believe them. So I say all that to say, even though my mother and I had a little bit of a tough childhood and she and I had a rough relationship when I was younger, even during the rougher times of our relationship, I would always think back to the fact that after I told her what was happening, immediately she called an attorney and she called a gynecologist and we went to get me a rape kit and she told me that she believed me and that she was going to protect me and that it was never going to happen to me again. That is a lot to ask of a woman, of a mother. It is especially a lot to ask of a Black woman and of a Black mother. And I will always be so grateful to her for that reaction. That said, though, there really is no way to involve any sort of higher authority in the context of rape or sexual assault without it becoming criminalized immediately and becoming an issue of criminal intent. And so do I think that my mother wanted my cousin to go to jail and to be criminally prosecuted? Yes, but also not because she thought that prison was where he needed to go or even that it would serve me best, but because it seemed like the only recourse. And if she was going to honor this commitment that she made to ending the cycle, to being the kind of mother who would not let something like this happen again, then that was the only option that seemed available to her. And so quite quickly, we ended up in a criminal legal process I sat through some depositions. I had to tell the story over and over again. I had to get a rape kit where I was prodded and touched in ways I didn't really want to be touched at that time. And from the beginning of the process, the moment she called an attorney and we had to write a statement and later he was indicted, there were a couple of different directions. I thought that he was indicted because of me, but it turns out he'd stolen a car and it just so happened that they already had him in holding and then they connected his DNA. It was just all very confusing and impossible for a young person to understand. And very quickly, I realized that having said something created this other set of procedures that seemed almost as, if not more so, violent and harmful to me than the rape itself. So I spent a lot of time after those proceedings began haunted and sort of horrified by the idea of my cousin being in prison and having to stay in prison because of me. I was an avid reader as a child, didn't watch a lot of TV, but the cop shows come on at 11 o'clock. Sometimes your mom goes to sleep. You know what jail looks like. You see all the horror stories. You know that in some ways the reason why people want other people to go to jail is because they know that violence will be projected on them. 
And there were very many nights where I couldn't sleep. I was haunted by this idea that someone could be doing the same thing to my brother that he had done to me. I remember my mom saying one time, and again, bless her heart, this she didn't know that it would bother me in this way, but she said to him, she said like, you know, people don't like rapists in jail. They won't like what happens to them. And I think, again, trying to comfort me, she thought that that would help me and it horrified me. I was like, oh fuck, he could like die or like this other thing that happened to me could happen to him, but like much more violently by people who are like twice his size, like he was mine. And as a kid, you would think that somehow that was your fault. Yeah, 100%. That's exactly how I internalized it. I was like, oh, my mom thought that she was offering me some semblance of justice. And in my head, I was like, oh, wow, this person I really care about is about to be really harmed because of a thing I said. So I internalized all of that. And for years, even though ultimately the case, it wasn't dropped, but we sort of lost it because there weren't enough. It was so messed up. Like if there was one thing in the end that I thought was going to come out of it, it was going to be some kind of peace. But in the end, the reason why the case was dismissed was because I couldn't remember exact dates. And even now as an adult, I think about the function of trauma and how normal that is for a person who's experienced trauma to not be able to recall specific places, specific dates. And I think all the time about how I was essentially penalized for that. And in the end, right, it's sort of an okay thing in that my cousin didn't have to spend more time in jail because of me, or rather he did spend time in jail, but he didn't have to spend his entire life in jail because of me. I know that he's still alive. I don't know where or how, but I know that he's alive. It made a difference for me to go through life knowing that he also had a sense of freedom. But I knew from that very moment when my mom said, like, he's not going to enjoy what happens to him there, that, like, prison was not for me. Jail was not for me. It made absolutely no sense to me that he could go to prison and that the same violence that he was put there for would essentially be willed upon him as some sort of return on justice for me. I didn't want it. It didn't feel good. There was not a single part of it that made sense to me. And that kind of haunting, I think, is a thing that doesn't really dissipate or go away. It follows you it carries through every single thing that I did. And it wasn't until I encountered the idea of abolition that the theory clicked for me. The light bulb went off. That the haunting had a channel. Yeah, that there was a channel for this complexity that I couldn't work through, for this complication of emotions. It was like, oh, that's right. Something bad did happen to me. Someone was responsible the solution that I was offered was insufficient. And this is why I'm still unwell and unhealthy and unhealed. Did the contact with a framework like abolition give you a sense of how it could have gone better, of how the system could have served you rather than basically re-traumatizing you and building on that trauma? Yes, in some ways, yes. I would say, though, what it did for me beyond giving me insight into what it could be, is it showed me primarily what it shouldn't be very easily. When I realized, and through learning prison abolition, I think you come to prison abolition after understanding the prison industrial complex, after understanding the military industrial complex, and you see all of these systems are connected and you realize 
this has nothing to do with me, the individual. And, you know, in some ways, I'm kind of a selfish person. I'm a Capricorn. I tend to center myself more so than I actually want to or think is necessary. And so when I realized that the reason why he had been put in jail or the idea of him going to jail actually had nothing to do with me, that it was all of these other systems working on behalf of each other and validating and patting the pockets of people that I would never encounter, I realized that's when I started to tap in and be like, oh, there probably are alternatives out there that don't pad this person's pocket and actually make me feel a little bit better. And for people who have had proximity to the concept of abolition but aren't as familiar with it, how do you define abolition? Sure. So I define abolition as a theory and a political vision with the goal of eliminating and ending mass incarceration and the carceral system at large. Ending the carceral system means an end to policing, an end to surveillance, obviously, of course, an end to incarceration. But even beyond that, it's about undoing the systems and the frameworks that feed on and sustain the oppression of people through punishment, through violence, through control. The purpose of the abolition system isn't an isolated system, and so abolition can't be an isolated strategy. It's a broad strategy that encompasses all of these different modes of policing and all of these different systems that create a world of policing, a world where policing is possible. And prison abolition is the goal, the vision to build models that disrupt carceral systems and actually inspire us to live in the future that we want to live in. So it's both something that we lean on to educate us about how the carceral system works and a long-term goal. And you talk about as a kid sort of knowing in your body that this was not the solution to what had happened to you. But you also speak to the fact that you were not public with these views. And your words are very precise and very evocative. So I'm wondering if you would read a section from the article itself, beginning with, For Years I Hid. For years I hid from publicly announcing my belief in prison abolition because I felt like I had insufficient answers to my own questions. It wasn't until this winter when I gingerly asked an abolitionist friend, what do you think replaces the criminal justice system? And she said, nothing replaces it. That I said out loud with my own mouth, nothing replaces it. It's not the answer that is inadequate, but the question itself. And it wasn't until this summer or this winter or last winter when I asked my friend that, and I almost kicked myself when I asked her because I knew the answer. And then when she said, nothing replaces it. I was like, right, of course. That's what I've been saying to myself the whole time. But I thought I was crazy. I thought I was wild to assume that you could just eliminate a system and not replace it with anything. If that question is not the question we should be asking, if that question isn't about what replaces the criminal justice system isn't adequate, is there a better question we should be asking ourselves as we try to navigate this space? Yeah. I mean, I think the better question is, how do we take care of each other? It's very simple, right? And the answers aren't necessarily simple, but the question is something that we all ask ourselves and each other all the time. You just don't realize that you're thinking about it outside of a carceral context. First, you have to analyze what does it mean to be unsafe? Where does unsafeness come from? Who articulates what it means to be unsafe? What are the solutions that have been proposed to us that are supposed to solve for unsafety? And do they actually do that, right? 
those are the questions I think that sort of manifest from the question of how do we take care of each other that are much more useful than what replaces the carceral system or what happens if someone rapes you. In some ways, what you were saying about being a kid and having this instinctive knowledge, taking care of each other is also instinctive. It seems very much part of the same package of trusting our bodies and trusting our hearts and what's telling us is the right direction in this process. Yeah, it's funny that you say that. It's almost like prisons and the carceral system in general is actually like not natural to humans and not natural to humanness. We don't throw each other away because in a well-functioning society, every person is necessary and useful. Every person has a role and has a job. And if you remove one person from the community, then the community can't function. But in the society that we live in now, a capitalist, hierarchical society, a colonized society, there is the assumption that there are only certain people who are actually valuable and only certain people that are needed. We exist in a hierarchy of value. There are some people who matter or who we assume to matter to our overall safety. For instance, like an attorney general or a state's attorney. And then there are the people who we think are inconsequential to our safety. You know, someone who owns a bodega or the person running next to you on the street who you've never met before in your life. And I try to invert that as often as I can. I try to ask myself as a way to sort of like decarcerate my own understanding of care, I try to ask myself when I walk into any space, when I encounter anyone, what is my responsibility to you? And what does it look like for me to fulfill that? And I don't think that we live in a society that does that, that allows people to think in that way about each other and about their communities. COVID and the pandemic is the first time in a long time that we've actually had to think about how our individual singular actions create mass impact And it's funny, it's also part of why I realized now is the time to speak out about how I felt about abolition and why I felt so strongly about it. Because for the first time, people are thinking as a collective, people are thinking about what care looks like on a bunch of different levels. I mean, even just thinking about the fact that there are so many people who are incarcerated, who are dying from COVID, no treatment, will never be able to get to see their families, people who haven't even been convicted of crimes, people who are just in holding in jails dying for no reason. I think this is why it felt like the perfect time to really ask people to think really hard about what care looks like and what they owe to each other. I mean, honestly, it's care. We frame it so often in humans about people, but it's care in a much bigger sense. Like it's our responsibility to everything in our environment, it seems. And I mean, I think what abolition, from what I understand, seems to do is to make our vision bigger. And the bigger vision is actually like a whole cosmos, a whole ecology of insects and people. And and I also wonder, you know, you make an interesting point about COVID and care. I wonder if there's a connection between what happened this summer with the protests and the uprisings and the fact that we're in the middle of a global pandemic. I wonder if there is some connection about people's awareness of life, of the value of life and how tenable it is. Yeah, 100%. I think that's exactly right. I think that there are some people in the last year who have truly come into their humanity, truly come into understanding that they live in bodies and that your body is a house that bleeds and that beats. And if you don't feed it, if you don't take care of it, if you don't consider what it is in proximity to other people, then you may not have it. And I think just that very clear understanding for some people, people who 
lost their family members, people who were infected by COVID and literally were on the edge of death for days, came back into their bodies, came back into the world and realized that they're not singular, that they're not individual, and that that tenuousness of life is something that some people walk through every day. And there's no bodily infection. It's not individual. It's systemic. And I hate to think that it would have to take something like this for people to start to be open to the impact, to start to be open to how we treat each other and what that means. But I am grateful that people had some time to reflect and to really think about the way that systems affect our bodies. And, you know, I think that if government didn't fail so significantly in protecting people, I also don't think we would be having this conversation about abolition and about systems in general. Feeling the failure. I think Feeling the failure and realizing not having our safety in very real terms addressed. Addressed. There are people who genuinely have gone through most of their lives believing that government will show up for you, that the system will support you no matter what. And this was the first time that very many people realized that that's a mirage, that that's not the way that it always shapes out. And in this context, realizing that if your government will neglect to give you the protection you need to stay alive, that it will neglect to give hospitals the protection it needs to protect you, that it will neglect to give local governments the funding that it needs to protect the hospitals so the hospitals can protect you. You see how that system falls apart at every single lever and you ask yourself, well, if the doctors aren't important, then the nurses aren't important. And if the nurses aren't important, then the nurse's assistants aren't important. And if the nurse's assistant isn't important, me, the patient, I can't be important. And if I'm not important, then my mother isn't important. My child isn't important. You realize that again, that hierarchy of value that was assumed is actually not real. It's fake. The only people who truly are valuable to our systems are the people who perpetuate those systems, who keep them alive. And I think what people realized is that they actually had a lot less autonomy than they thought, and that systems actually controlled much more of their lives than they really wanted them to. When you realize that the system is the difference between life or death for you, then you realize that the system isn't working. I was going to say one way that a lot of the conversations about safety gets channeled is through this question that we referenced in the intro, but is what do we do with the rapists and murderers? This question gets to everybody's core fear. It's like such a gut place and it sort of shuts the brain down a little bit and seems to just serve those who have an instinct to keep the system going. I'm wondering, again, you had a beautiful way of connecting how survivors fit into that conversation by comparing them to zombies. And I'm wondering if you could also read that section. Sure. Survivors are like zombies. And like zombies, the world projects its living haunts its perceptions of good and bad, of safe and unsafe on our bodies. Like the dead, we are trapped in this binary spiral, trapped in the clutches of another's predictive, paternalistic, and performative understanding of safety. Can you describe what you mean by the binary spiral? Because I think this gets to something really core about the conversation, about how we divide things into categories. And in some ways, the categories feel like something we're holding on to as a a remnant of safety. But I think what you're saying is that they're not doing their job. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that binary spiral is the binary that assumes that there is crime and then there is good behavior, that there is safety and then unsafety, that there is harm 
and non-harm, when really everything in the world exists on a spectrum in between those binaries, right? First of all, crime is something that we have created. It is an assumption that there are some behaviors that are more harmful than others. And I think like we can always have a conversation about harm. We can always say that if I throw a pencil at you versus throwing a stapler at you, one is going to hurt more than the other. But it doesn't change my intention, right? Or change the fact that my intention by itself was harmful. And so I think what happens in that binary spiral is that people think it's that simple, right? They think that if someone is either criminal or not, then we know exactly what to do with the criminals. If somebody is good or bad, then we know that the good people should stay out of jail and the bad ones should go away. But what happens when we take away that binary? What happens when you take away crime versus not crime or good versus bad? Then you realize that we're all sort of operating on the same spectrum. I have shoplifted. There's a woman, I'm sure right now, somewhere in the world who is houseless, out of work, trying to feed her children, who is also shoplifting. Is my harm worse than hers? Because I didn't need a home? Perhaps, one might say, but because I have a home, because I have access, because I have privilege, she's a lot more likely to go to jail for that than I am. Even though one could argue, it makes no sense for me to be shoplifting anything. I'm not in need. But this person who is radically in need is a lot more likely to be held accountable for an action that we both commit. That binary makes it impossible to really analyze what I owe back to my society, what I owe back to my community, and what we owe her. If a system were to say that any sort of harm that happens to it is its own responsibility, then it would do a lot more to protect itself from harm. And in this context, the system protecting itself from harm is making sure that this woman has everything she needs to take care of her children, to take care of her home, to take care of her body, so that she doesn't have to take from the system, so that she doesn't have to steal from it. And when you think about it in that way, it makes it so obvious to understand why crime is manufactured and how it's manufactured. The system benefits from knowing that it puts people in situations where they might need to cause harm to the system in order to protect themselves. And it does nothing to eliminate those circumstances or better them so that no harm has to happen at all, not to itself or to another person. That was something that you also said in the article about your cousin, whom we're calling Artie, that he needed help too, that his mom had died because of drugs and that that is part of a much larger system that was not addressed in his incarceration. Yeah, I'm sure that in his childhood, someone did something not very nice to him. I'm sure he was touched in a way that he didn't enjoy. I'm sure that there were times where he was left alone or abandoned. I don't necessarily, I can't assume to know how that becomes a motivation that manifests into harming someone in the way that he did me. But I don't think it's my job to necessarily understand it. It feels more like my job to just say that there's a connection there and that it's someone's responsibility to figure it Definitely out. Definitely not a seven or eight-year-old's responsibility. Definitely not a seven no. or eight-year-old, but no one else was interested in that motivation but me. And to this day, I remember feeling when I was a kid or saying to my mother during an episode or a breakdown, like, I just want to know why. I just want to know why he did this to me. And I never got that. I never got to ask him and I never got an answer. 
And I feel a lot more centered about it now because I think I assume with everything that I know now, with all the privilege that I've been able to gather that I think that if he were to answer me, I think I would already know the answer. I think he would say that he was hurting and that he saw something on TV and it seemed intimate and interesting and wanted to try it out on someone. I don't think at any point in time did he actually want to like harm me. I think he wanted to utilize his own power. I think he wanted to hold power over me because he felt disempowered. And these are all hypotheses. Hypotheses. I can't know for a fact. It feels frustrating to me that a system with so many resources that has done so much to understand human behavior and the science of human behavior would not be interested in trying to understand that motivation at all or much less interested than me. What's really shocking to me about the question, what do we do with the murderers and the rapists, is that nowhere in that question is any mention of survivors. And hundred percent. And of what would be good for them, whose safety, I assume, is the safety we are trying to address in that moment through accountability and separation. And it also seems like thinking about systems and the domino effect of harm is that you were harmed Artie was harmed, but then there were all these other people, like your mom. Your mom had no alternative to, she clearly wanted to help you, and this was the only avenue available. Mm -hmm. Yes. And when I think about that, when I was younger, I thought about it as like, this thing happened to me, and now everybody is unwell. My mom, my grandma. But I realize now that it is not the thing that happened to me that made everyone unwell but the system's reaction to what happened to me that made everyone unwell. And I think that's what makes me angry is that harm did happen. Harm happened to a couple of different people in this dynamic and in this situation. And there was nothing to turn to for healing except for each other, which is probably exactly what we needed in the first place. Hmm. It's interesting to me that at if you look for it at your fingertips, you have stories like yours, and you've talked about in 2020, there are more stories at our fingertips about how the system is not serving people. The other thing that has come up is that the data has for years shown that the system as it is, is not serving the people we think it's serving. And just for a couple examples, most rape and assault is never reported to law enforcement in the first place. And of the cases that are, fewer than 1% are referred to prosecutors and even fewer result in convictions. And as you go through the system, the data keeps giving you back the same information that this is not working. And I'm wondering, as we think about moving in to alternatives, how do we raise up the stories in this debate, but also the facts, because the facts are telling us a very clear story. Yeah, you're exactly right. It has been proven over and over again that police presence is not necessarily a successful deterrent to bad behavior or to harm. It just isn't. That's just never been true. One thing that I think about all the time that sort of makes me giggle sometimes is that when people say, what do we do about the rapists and murderers? Part of the reason why they're saying that is because they assume that police presence or that police and carceral systems in general can stop something like that from happening. And I always laugh at that because I ask every person who I have this debate with, when have you ever heard of a person saying, I was almost raped and then a cop showed up? I have never heard it a day in my life. Police are 
unequipped to actually prevent harm. They can't do it. Their only job is to come in in the middle of harm occurring or to come in after for the sake of accountability. Especially harm that is happening in the privacy of a home among family members. There's nothing that that identifies that in public as being something where they could step in. Right. And we know that most assaults, most sexual assaults happen um, as intimate violence. So people that you know, people that you're close to, it's rare that rape or sexual assault happens by the hands of a stranger. Right. And I think about that all of the time. And what you realize is that people are conditioned to think that there are things that happen in the world that they do not and should not have to think about should not and do not have to care about. And the function of the police is supposed to protect them from the things that they do not want to see or care about, right? And so it's not actually that anybody thinks that cops prevent harm, but more so that if police exist and they become a barrier to the existence of harm. And that's why you have people, wealthy white people living in wherever, who have never seen a prison in their lives, who've never experienced a robbery, whose children deal and sell drugs and that is dealt with in a classroom, in the principal's office. It never becomes a criminal offense because the function of the police in their lives is not to actually hold them accountable to harm or to mitigate harm. It's to protect them from the idea of it and to protect them then from the idea of a collective accountability. And so what happens is when people buy into that distancing effect then it's super easy to assume that if you just hold on to that distance, then you too can be safe and that everyone around you can be safe. And so what people are actually trying to protect is the distance, not even themselves. They're not actually even trying to like prevent harm. They're just living under the assumption that it would never happen to them anyway because there's some sort of wall. And so when people say, like, what do we do with the survivor, with the rapists and the murderers? It's like, I don't even know why you're asking me this question because you don't think you'll ever be raped or murdered. That's not why you're asking this. It's not because you actually have a fear of harm, of you being harmed. It's that you don't ever want to have to deal with it. You don't ever want to have to encounter it. You would much rather know that that is happening to somebody somewhere across the river and that there's somebody who has to deal with it. You don't have to be the person to hold your husband, your brother, your cousin, your best friend, your favorite football player. You don't have to be the one to hold that person accountable. Also because it's hard work. I don't think anyone is suggesting that this is easy. This is hard work. Reconciliation work, finding alternative solutions is hard work. And sort of speaking to that hard work, One facet that is really, really interesting to me, I think in part because of what I do is I'm, you know, a filmmaker, but also I work at the ACLU and have to speak in a very specific language. You are an accomplished poet and a political, you operate as a political strategist and you come up with messaging. You have fluency in two worlds that often process systems and come to solutions very differently. And I'm wondering How has fluency in each of those helped you advocate for abolition? Mm -hmm. So, you know, I was going to say this earlier. Thank you for this question. It really brings up so many thoughts. Part of what I love the most about poetry and about poetics is that when you encounter poetry, what you're actually encountering is questioning and questioning that like opens up your idea of what's possible. So, When I am thinking about writing poems, thinking about how to say the thing that I really feel, 
my first thought isn't necessarily what is the easiest way that I could say this? What is the quickest way to get from A to Z? That's actually not the point. What of is the, the truest? The point is not, it's what is the truest. It is what is the most imaginative. It is what is the most interesting and what is the most expansive? How can I hold multiple truths at once? How can I hold multiple realities at once and still transform the way that we think about those truths, the way that we encounter them? And that love of the function of poetry is actually what brought me to politics and to messaging and political messaging in this way, because I know that we don't do that in politics. We don't encounter language with the assumption of, well, what else can it do? How much bigger than me is it? Where are things hiding? What can I uncover? We think of language as a purely functional, practical tool, a tactic that does a couple of things. And what I think I can do, and even though I hate politics, I hate it. Every day I'm like, I want to go write movies and mind my business. I think what I am trying to bring to the world and bring to politics is the kind of expansiveness that writing allows you. And this is part of why abolition is so beautiful to me in a political context, because abolition is one of the few alternative frameworks and theories that is as generative and as forward-looking and as futuristic as what poems tend to be and can be. It also feels like Poetry is this very personal voice that can have a public forum. And in some ways, it feels like that's where the two fluencies come into contact, because both of them also require taking really big, huge ideas like race and policing and how we treat each other and make them very small. And it seems like in thinking about the work of telling stories that a lot of what you do in the political space is have to tell a small story that gets the big thing. And that's also seems like the case in poetry and, and how important it is to keep it personal. No, that makes total sense. I think about that a lot. And I think I see this quite often naturally when I try to explain the connection for me between poetry and politics. What politics and what political language doesn't do, that poetry does, when you are writing about a body, whether it's a human body or uh, body systems, whatever, you cannot write that poem without acknowledging whether or not the body is alive. And you cannot write a poem about something being alive without having analyzed what it means to be alive, which is why you can have a poem that is about someone who has theoretically died, but is alive and living and growing in other spaces because the definition of what it means to be alive is complicated beyond life and death. In politics, we don't do that. We don't complicate the ideas of what bodies can and can't do and of what they are. We write legislation about people and we never acknowledge whether they're alive or dead. And we never acknowledge what it means to be in service to being alive or to being dead, what it means for systems to be in service to aliveness and deadness. And like that's why I do what I do, right? It's because I think that in an ideal world, political language would do a lot more of what poetry portends to do and would make a lot more of the assumptions that poems assume, or rather not make any assumptions at all, which poems also do, right? And comfort with liminal spaces, comfort with, with being uncomfortable. Comfort with not having the damn answer, yeah. right? Like, which is where we are. For a long time, I, 
where we are. For a long time, I wrote poems that didn't have any resolution. And that felt really powerful to me because I was tired of being in stuck in systems of thought that said that if you don't end the poem, that if you don't end the thought, that it is not worthwhile. And that's also part of what I love about abolition, right? Like people keep being like, okay, well, what's the alternative? And I keep being like, there is none. And people are like, well, how do we take care of each other? And I'm like, I'm asking you, you tell me. It's so open. There are so many ways to imagine what can be possible. So many ways to imagine and reimagine care, imagine and reimagine harm. And people are so afraid of that. People want things to be defined. They want them to be easy and accessible. But I think that as society evolves and as humans evolve, nothing is that simple anymore. Binaries aren't real. And the more we get comfortable living in liminal spaces, living in spaces that are dense and complicated, that don't give us easy answers, the better answers we actually find. It takes us longer and it's a lot more work, but it winds up being better for all of us. And so I'd much rather live in this ambiguous world of trying to understand harm, trying to understand how we take care of each other and completely doing away with the police, completely doing away with carceral systems and living in this sort of balance where I'm not exactly sure yet. I don't exactly know how to take care of my community, but abolition gives me an opportunity to really think about it, to really figure it out. I'm much more comfortable here, even though some people may think of it as ambiguous than I am with the idea that like, you know, if a person runs up on me on the street that I just call the cops. I don't want to do that. That doesn't seem complicated enough. Yeah. It feels like ending on the note that there is no ending, that we need to find comfort in liminal spaces is the perfect way to end. Can I just say one Please. last thing? I am not the authority on abolition. There is no real authority. There are multiple authorities, but I think like take what I'm saying as a grain of salt because there are people who have been doing this work for decades and who have been studying this and doing so much work in the legislative spaces and outside of them. Some that I want to name, Mariam Kaba, the Kambahi River Collective, Angela Davis, Derricka Purnell, Woods Irvin, Ruth Wilson Gilmore. Before you take me as an authority, listen and read all of these other people. They are so much smarter than me and they get this way better than I do. But regardless, I'm really grateful that you all read my piece and that you gave my voice some space to just talk about what I really feel. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for addressing that. Thank you again. You're so welcome. Thanks so much for listening. If you valued this conversation, please be sure to subscribe to At Liberty wherever you get your podcasts and rate and review the show. We so appreciate the feedback. Until next week, stay strong. 